All right, boys and girls, y'all want to join me up here for just a second? Come on up. I got a little story for you this morning. I'll let you figure out if you're a kid or not. Come on, Craig. (laughs) Y'all knew that one was coming. Harley, did you finish it already? Almost? In the middle of it. Harley got our free Bible last week, and she came to me Wednesday night, and she said, I'm, all, I'm already halfway done with the whole Bible. So isn't that a wonderful thing? That's awesome. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, today we're going to, and I need, oh, goodness, who lit the candle last week? I think it was Colin. So I need somebody else to help me light a candle this morning. Isaac, you want to help me? All right, let me read the story first, and we'll do it. One of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, with it being Christmas time, is while we talk about the little baby that was born, one of the things that's really cool about that baby is that baby is the way that we can be saved from our sin, that we can be made right with God. And so this morning in our sermon, we're going to be talking about Abraham and how God called Abraham to do some really crazy stuff, like move all the way across the world. That's pretty crazy. And so this morning, we're going to talk about Abraham and the little boy that was born to Abraham. And so here's our story this morning. Years passed. Can you all see it? You all can scoot in if you can't see it, because my head doesn't bend that way. Years passed, and things didn't get any better. People were, people were still just as cruel and mean to one another. They still got sick and died, and God's world was still full of tears. It was never meant to be like this. But God was getting ready to do something about it. He was going to make all the wrong things right, and he was going to do it through a family. Abraham, God said, how many stars are there? God was about to tell his friend a wonderful secret. Let me see, Abraham said, rolling up his sleeves. But have you ever tried counting the stars? Then you know how hard it is. 993, 994, 997. Uh Uh-oh. No, wait. Shoot. One, two. Of course, he kept losing count. There are too many, he said. Well, guess what, God laughed. I will give you so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you won't be able to count them either. I mean, could you imagine what Thanksgiving would be like with a family that big? That'd be a lot of dessert, though, wouldn't it? That's good. Abraham couldn't help giggling, giggling at such a wonderful idea, but he stopped himself. How could he have a family? Don't be silly. He didn't have any children, let alone any grandchildren. He wiped away a tear. Anyway, it was far too late for him to start having babies at his age. He was 99 years old. What could God mean? And then God told Abraham his secret rescue plan. Abraham, I will make your family very big, God promised, until one day your family will come to number more than even all the stars in the sky. Abraham looked up at the dark night sky, thick with stars. You will be my special family, my people, and through you, everyone on earth will be blessed. It was an incredible promise. God was going to rescue the world through Abraham's family. One of his great, 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 great grandchildren would be the child, the promised one, the rescuer. But it's too wonderful, Abraham said. How can it be true? Is anything too good to be true, God asked? Is anything too wonderful for me? So Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eyes could see, and he believed. Now, when Abraham's wife, Sarah, heard God's promise, she just laughed to herself. 
But it wasn't a happy laugh. It had tears in it. You see, she'd always wanted a baby. Could her dream come true? Could she really have a baby when she was 90 years old? No, of course not. Don't be silly. It was far too late. Sarah didn't believe God could do what he promised. She had forgotten that when God says something, it's as good as done. Of course, it was as easy for God to give her a baby son as it was for him to make all the stars in the sky. Sure enough, nine months later, just as God had promised, Sarah gave birth to a baby boy. They named him Isaac, which means son of laughter. And Sarah laughed, but this time it was a glorious, happy laugh, and her dream had come true. God would do just as he promised. He would always look after Abraham's family, his special people. And one day, God would send another baby. A baby promised to a girl who didn't even have a husband. But this baby would bring laughter to the whole world. This baby would be everyone's dream come true. Now, boys and girls, if you don't have this Bible and you want it for your family, for your family Bible time, one of y'all can come see me after the service and we'll give it away. Isaac, will you come on up here and help me light this candle? Let me see if I can find our lighter here. See if you can do it. We're going to light two candles here. Uh-oh. What's on your hand here? Can you do it left-handed? All right, let's see it. Maybe. <laughs> let's do this. There we go. We've got to find an easier one of these to light because everybody has a problem with it. All right, guys, will you pray with me, please? And then kids, will go back to our parents. God, I thank you that as I stand here with Isaac, and we talk about the story of Isaac, that we can be so grateful for your plan. It is far more wonderful and honestly far more weird than we would ever think of. You call us to do all kinds of things, and you, um, you ask to be the Lord of our life, and we're supposed to go where you tell us to go and do what you tell us to say, or do, do what you uh, tell us to do. So God, for these kids specifically, I pray that their parents will set such clear examples of following Jesus that it just becomes a natural thing for them. God, we thank you for this season and for your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks, boys and girls. <clears throat> All right, for those of you that have um, come journeyed with us here last week, we um, started talking about how um, <clears throat> God's grace conquers all the messed up stuff in the world. We talked about creation and how as soon as the light of creation began to shine, we screwed it all up. You have Adam and Eve disobeying. You have Adam, Adam and Eve's first children killing each other. You have the flood where God regretted that he made mankind. You have the Tower of Babel where people refused to do what God said to go and fill the earth, and instead they congregate in one place and they want to build a tower to make a great name. We use the analogy that it's kind of like, you know, the, the bright morning sun and the sun starts to shine and you're ready for a new day and then the clouds start to roll in and your potentially beautiful day gets cloudy and stormy. Following that same kind of um, storyline, that, that whole darkness and light imagery happens all throughout the scriptures. And so by the time we get to Genesis 11, you've got... Adam and Eve's disobedience, Cain and Abel, you've got the flood, you've got the Tower of Babel. It's pretty dark. But yet in Genesis 12, God begins to do something new where the light of the gospel shines through again. And really, honestly, if I asked you this morning if you knew any crazy people, don't raise your hand and don't 
point. Um, it's not nice. This is not an opportunity to talk about our mother-in-laws. Um, nothing of the sort. Who's a crazy person? You want to know who a, a, a good definition of a crazy person should be? Somebody who follows God wholeheartedly. Has God ever called you to do something you don't fully understand? God ever changed your plans? Goodness gracious, there are stories we could tell. And today, when we talk about, last week we talked about conquering grace. How God's grace shone brighter the darker that it got. Today we're going to talk about the craziness of grace. That God's grace will take you places you never thought. Some of you, you're, you want to giggle like uh, Abraham and Sarah did to know that you're in church when you look at where you were a year ago. That's an amazing thing to think about. God's grace will take you places you don't know. It will take you farther than, than you thought you could go, and it will give you things that you never thought you would have. And so we're going to talk about three crazy moves that God's grace does in our life. And the very first one is the one that's, I think, most obvious in Abraham's life, or Abram's life, is that grace may change your place. Grace may change your place. Look with me at Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 4. We're going to be in Genesis. It's going to be on the screen, the pew Bible in front of you. That's page 9. We're at the very beginning of the book. And we're just going to turn to the right a couple pages to get through 12, 15, 17, and chapter 22. But beginning in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, here is what happens. God shows up. We don't know that God had ever talked to Abram before. But God shows up. We don't even know that Abram is a follower of God. And this is the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There is a, a very easy temptation for us to think that God is a southerner. He's talking about blessings so much. It's all over the place in this chapter when he starts off. You're going to be a blessing. Um, he's talking about this. Here's the point. They are called to a crazy move. Look at verse 4. So Abraham, Abram went just as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Listen, I moved, what, about three and a half years ago? I hope I never move again. It is a god-awful experience. (laughs) Packing up everything that you own. I mean, how many of you, for your 75th birthday, you're looking forward to making an international move? The only move that's going to happen for you is perhaps your son and daughter moving you somewhere. You're not making the move. But he's making this move from, at the end of chapter 11, from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran in Mesopotamia to Canaan. Easily a journey of 1,800 miles with no moving truck and a whole horde of family members with him. According to Joshua 24.2, Abram's father was a pagan unbeliever. He worshipped the the multitude of gods that were part of the Mesopotamian culture. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 31, both Abram and his father are believers in the one true God. But at this point, they're nobodies. We don't know anything about Abram before chapter 12. We don't, we don't know that Abram is even a believer, but God shows up to him and says, I need you to move and leave everything that you know behind. I want you to leave your relatives, your land, your father's house. Okay, God, I think I can obey. Where are we going? Tell you when you get there. Try that with a moving company. 
We're just going to wander around, and we'll tell you when we get there. Don't even want to know what those fees would look like. And here's the thing that's awesome. God is calling them to a crazy move. It doesn't make any sense to make a crazy international move like this. Here's the thing that we get from this passage. In verses 1 through 3, the only word that is repeated multiple times is the word, starts with a B, blessing. God wants to bless Abram, but not just Abram. He wants to bless all the peoples of the earth through him. God's desire is to bless, but he cannot bless him where he's at. He can't bless him where he's at. He needs him to move for the blessing to be realized. And sometimes we don't understand that. We want God to just do what he's going to do and not change anything in our life, don't we? And sometimes God's got to move you to bless you. I love the way, and I don't know, it's not original with me, but I love the way uh, it's stated like this. God will always love you where you are at, but lead you where you need to be. Isn't that, isn't that everybody's testimony in one sense? No matter how miserable and rebellious of a sinner you are, God will love you where you are at, and he will lead you to where you need to be. That's Abram's story. God's going to bless him. But to bless him, there's got to be a relocation of his physical uh, proximity. And the result is multiple blessings, at least three. Land, seed, meaning children, and a great name. He says, I'm going to show you a land. You get moving in that direction, and I'll tell you when, when you get there. I think this is very interesting because we go back just nine chapters to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had been given a place. They had been given a land, and they had to be driven out from it. They had a promised land, a place of plenty. Abraham has a promised land, and he is driven towards it. God is beginning his process of redemption. Uh, in the, the promise made to the woman that there would be a seed, there would be, there would be a child who would be born who would crush the head of the serpent, that's further clarified here. It's of all of the children, the descendants of Adam and Eve and all of the descendants of Noah when God started over, it's now going to come through Abraham, his special family. And then he says, I'm going to give you a great name and you'll be a blessing. Here's the thing that's really interesting. When the Tower of Babel was being built, what was the motive for building the Tower of Babel? Let's not be scattered. Let's stay right here, build a big city with a tower to heaven and make a name for ourselves. It's what people fought for. It's what they rebelled against God for. And yet here, God gives the blessing of a great name to a man who doesn't even want it. What nations rebelled for and fought for and strove for, God, by his sovereign choice, freely gives to Abram. And I love this because even here in Genesis 12, we see the seed of God's great commission. By choosing this one man and this one family, God's desire is to bless and to redeem all of sinful humanity. That every name will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it all begins by recognizing that God, he's got the keys. If he tells you to move, you move. He gets to mess with your place. And he gets to call you to a crazy move. Listen, for some of you, the move may not be like physical moving from Kentucky to South Carolina, it may just be recognizing that God moved you to church. It's, it's a wonderful thing to sit here and to see a name with a story of someone who wasn't here last year. 
God moved you. Maybe not out of Rock Hill, but moved you to a new faith family. It doesn't stop there. Our second point, we're going to go to Genesis 15 and 17, just a couple pages to the right. We'll see that grace will bring you face to face. Grace will change your place, point number one. Point number two, grace will bring you face to face. In Genesis 15 and 17, we see what theologians call the covenant. God is establishing a relationship with with Abram that is to be regulated by a covenant. Now, a lot of times when we hear the word covenant, we begin to think of something that's a dry and dusty legal document. You know, we think it's it's a contract, so to speak. And that would be a really wrong way to think about the covenant that God establishes with, with Abram. A covenant is a relationship. So when God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, that's, that's not just establishing an abstract concept. He's establishing a special relationship with this family that he's not establishing with other families. There's a sovereignness to what he's doing. And he is establishing a relationship and calling Abram to a crazy relationship. Guys, you think about this. We believe that what we do this morning, the prayers that we pray, the praises that we sing, the word that we proclaim, actually corresponds to a reality out there that we can't see. And that the God that made everything and who upholds everything by the power of his being, the God that causes all the oxygen molecules to continue to be oxygen molecules, Because, you know, that only needs to stop for like a second for all of us to be in big trouble. God preserves everything. And we believe that through his son, we have access to him to call him father. That's amazing to think about. So in chapter 15, God speaks again. Uh, He spoke to Abram in chapter 12 and called him to move. But in chapter 15, he shows up again. It's been a few years. And he speaks to Abram again. And here's the thing that's really cool. Here's how you see the nature of a covenant, that it's not a legal document, it's a personal relationship, is Abram, for the first time, speaks back. He speaks back. Now, what do you think you would do if, like, if, like next week we could say, all right, God's going to be here to preach? That'd be awesome. Would you ask a question? <laughs> Unfortunately, maybe some of you would. I think I would... Listen. But Abram has a relationship where he can talk to God face to face. And you see the nature of this relationship that he calls him to. Look at verses 1 through 6. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord, God, <laughs> a little fill in the blank here. Last time you showed up, you said you're going to make me a great nation. I, got, I ain't got any kids. Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram's response, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, God is doing something very gracious to Abram here. Abram is kind of trying to figure things out as he's going along. He's following faithfully. He's he's walking along with the light that he has. He's moving in the right direction. 
but he needs some reassurance. He needs God to reveal things. And he's going, all right, God, is my great progeny going to be that I adopt my servant and he gets everything? He says, no. Let me clarify things here a little bit. You're going to have a kid born to you. He's going to be your DNA. So he reassures him. He reveals more. And then he says, hey, let's have a little astronomy lesson. Go out and count the stars. Now listen, here's, here's the thing you, you don't realize. There were more stars back in Abram's day because there were no bright lights. You know, there aren't, It's not like there's less stars. We just see less of them because of all the light pollution. And I love this because there's a little word play here that depending on your translation, you may miss out on. Mine says, go out and count the stars. And Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Some translations will use the same word. Go out and count the stars if you can do that. And Abram says, no, I can't do it. And it says that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You can't count the stars, but you can count the righteousness of Abram. He believed God. Now here's the thing that's awesome. There's a picture here and I don't see it on here. I got to see it there. Anybody know what that is? Anybody read the news this week? This is the latest and greatest, most up-to-date picture from the Hubble Space Telescope called the Ultra Deep Field Scan. This was just revealed by NASA this week. This is the furthest in all of human history that we have been able to see into the universe. So what's up there is not stars. Those are galaxies. Hundreds. Millions of stars. Now, obviously, Abram wouldn't have been able to see them all, and so God was using hyperbole, saying, hey, I'm going to make you just as numerous as the stars are. It's not like if we could know the number of stars that are out there and then we count Abram's family tree. It's hyperbole. It's, it's using exalted language to say you're going to have a great host of, of kids. Here's the thing. He's saying God, God's got a plan for Abram that is much further. Here's a childless guy being told he's going to be made into a great nation. And in the scale of what God wants to do for him is just mind-blowing. So for those of you that go, all right, there's hundreds of, hundreds of galaxies, billions of stars, blah, 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 blah. I need something more concrete. Okay, so here's how you can figure out um, the massive nature of what God does. Tonight, when the, um, when the, the sun goes down, the, clouds come, uh, the, the stars come up, go get you. Um, there's a wonderful thing that you have in your homes if you ever lose a button called a sewing kit, um, I don't think we have one of those in our house. Um, but in, the, in that sewing kit, there's a little needle. Okay, so tonight, when you go out, that picture is 140 million, 140 millionth of the observable sky. 140 millionth, if that's even a word. Millionth? 140 million. Um, so here's what you do. All right, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Forget the language. Um, you get your little sewing needle, and you look through the eye of that needle, and you hold it up, and that's what that's a picture of. That many stars in the hole of that needle that you're looking at at the night sky. Multiply that by 40 million. You might have a picture of this creation that God has created. God says, this is what happens when you're in relationship with me. There are blessings that will come that are incredible. And so... Abram says he believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. And God's reply in verse 15, Abram says, how is this going to happen? Abram, uh, God's reply to Abram is through the rest of chapter 15 is the ratification of the covenant. And it's, um, you know, kids will like it. It's kind of 
crazy, but Abram sacrifices an animal, cuts him in half, puts a half over here, half over here, and then he walks through and God walks through. And the implication is if either of us are unfaithful to the covenant, may the same thing that happened to this animal happen to us. May we be cut in half. May we be killed. May we be destroyed. May we be faithful to the pledge that we're making. This is a long-haul relationship, which is why we call marriage a covenant. It's not a contract. Because if it's a contract, then what when your spouse does what you don't want her to do, you're out. A covenant is long-haul commitment to uh, the other's blessing. Chapter 17. <clears throat> Abram has received the promise that uh, you know, a kid that's going to be born to him is going to be his heir. And so um, we know from chapter 11, verse 27, that Sarai is barren. She's unable to have kids. So God has said very clearly, it's not going to be your servant. It's going to be somebody who's born from your body. And Sarah goes, ain't going to be born from my body. So why don't you take my slave girl, have a kid through her, and we'll kind of, maybe this is the way God wants to fulfill his promise. So by the time we get to Genesis 17, Ishmael has been born through Hagar, and Ishmael is 13 years old. Uh, Look with me at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him, As for me, my covenant is with you, and you will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful, and will make... Nations and kings come from you. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as an eternal possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. So when God gives a stipulation for the covenant, the way that he works out that stipulation in verses 10 through 14 is he calls for the sign of circumcision, the cutting of flesh to be a sign of the covenant, that they were going to be uh, in their flesh different from all of the nations around them. So if you want some more um, uh, particular details about circumcision, you can read verses 10 through 14. We'll skip, skip over that just to keep it rated G. And um, if you are really interested in that, 10 through 14, that's your, those are your verses. Um, in verses 15 through 19, God's reiterating these promises and expanding them and saying kings and nations and all these people. And then in verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, don't call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. And he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, Oh, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, No. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his future offspring. God here prophesies and he clarifies the nature of his relationship and what he's going to do to bless them by saying specifically, you're going to be a great nation. It's not going to be a servant. It's going to be someone born you. It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And he makes this promise of a son for Sarah, a big, huge, impossible promise 
for a barren woman. All the promises that God has given are going to be wrapped up in this child. And that brings us to the third and the final crazy move that God calls us to. Not only to change our place, not only to move and to be in a face-to-face personal relationship with God, but in chapter 22, we see the terrible and glorious truth that grace will take your place. Grace will take your place. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Wow. What's going on here? The very first thing we know is that God, we, we, we're on God's side in this. We know more about what's going on than Abraham does. Because God, from the very first verse, says this is a test. It's a test. There's no way that Isaac's life is going to be forfeit. This is a test. And God already knows the outcome of the test, but Abraham doesn't. And if Abraham knew it was a test, then that kind of ruins the test. It has to be like this, that God knows something, and we as the readers of Scripture know something that Abraham doesn't know at this point. And here's the thing that is amazing to me. You remember Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, when he called him. He said, I want you to leave your relatives and your father's people and your land. I want you to go to the country that I will show you. Genesis 22, it sounds the exact same way. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice him on the mountain that I will show you. It doesn't matter how long you walk with God, you still have to obey. It's been at least 25 years from when Abraham received the original promise to what's happening right now. And God still doesn't fill in all the details for him. He doesn't tell him what the test is about. He just gives three verbs. Go, take, sacrifice. And he goes. And you have to wonder about the psychology of this because Abraham had already had a son named Ishmael. And the family dynamics got really strange because Sarai at the time couldn't have a kid and Hagar did and she held that over Sarai. And then when Isaac was born, there was this competition about, well, my son's better than your son. You know how it happens. It's the original blended family. You know, there's, there's issues. And, and Sarah gets so upset. She says, Abram, send her away. Get rid of her. Well, Abram wants to do the right thing. <clears throat> he doesn't like it. So he takes it to God and says, God, what do I do? And he says, Abraham, I've told you, the child of promise is Isaac. So let Ishmael go. You you can kick him out of the house. I will take care of him. And when God tells him to do it, it's relatively easy. Okay, we don't have a lot of detail, but we know that when God said, let Ishmael go, Abraham let him go. And that was easier to let him go because he knew he still had Isaac, the child of promise, the one that had been longed for, the one that had been waited for. And so now when God says, all right, give up Isaac too, what's he going to do? See, Abraham is put on the horns of a dilemma because he knows two things. Number one, he knows that Isaac is the child of promise and that all of God's promises for future blessings are right there wrapped up in that boy. And yet the second thing that he knows is God has asked him to sacrifice him. So what do you do? 
You do what you know you are told to do. Would he cling to his boy? Would he obey his God? Verses 3 through 8 continue the story. So Abraham, and you almost get the sense that there's all this detail. The story slows down. And it's like Abraham tells you all the detail. I saddled my donkey and I tied my shoelaces and I spit out my chewing gum because it's like he wants to avoid getting to the place where the sacrifice is going to happen. So Abraham got up early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac and he split wood for a burnt offering and he set out to go to the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And in his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife. And the two of them walked on together. It's interesting, perhaps this is reading into the story a a little bit. Here's a father and a son on a hike in the woods and nobody's talking. It's a little awkward. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, Father... And Abraham replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Pesky kids. Always got to ask the most perceptive questions. And I think at this point, the challenge for us is to see the silence as the silence of awkwardness. Abraham doesn't want to tell Isaac what's coming up. You know, it's like you don't tell the turkey the day before Thanksgiving. Sorry, buddy. You're the sacrifice. But I don't think the silence is the silence of awkwardness because when we look at Abraham's response in verse 8, it is the silence of confidence that God is about to do something. He has no idea how it's going to work out. But he knows that God will be true. Abraham answered his son, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. So what is Abraham getting ready to do? He is getting ready to prove that he loves God more than the blessings that God gives. And I have to ask the question, like Job, if God removed his blessings from you right now, how many of you would still be faithful? It's tough for us to separate God from his blessings because they're kind of a package deal. And even if he doesn't give you much, it's still a blessing to be in relationship with him. But if he removed every blessing from you right now, how many of you would show up to worship him next week? I'm fearful that in our country, our churches would very quickly become museums. But Abraham is about to prove that he loves God more than the blessings that he gives. He's going to hold nothing back, even his most precious son, trusting that God will provide. In Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham is recorded in the hall of faith as believing that even if he had followed through with this terrible plan, that God would have had the ability to resurrect his son from the dead. Where does he get this knowledge, this Hope, this trust that God's going to, I don't know. But he knows that God has promised that Isaac is the son of promise, and yet God has called for him to be sacrificed, and God can give him life again. So in verses 9 and 10, Abraham lays his son on the altar, which is impossible to do without Isaac's cooperation. You think about that? Listen, my old man ain't putting me on an altar unless I want to get on the altar. He puts him on the altar, verse 9. 
When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abram built the altar there and arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. He'd taken all this time to explain all this detail about the journey, and when they get to the point, there's this rapidity of language. It's like he just wants to get done with it. All right, so we're there, and we put the wood, I put him on, and I got the knife. And at that moment, God provides a substitute. Look at verse 13. An angel appears and says, don't do it! Now I know that you fear God. God already knew it. Abraham needed to prove it. Verse 13, Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Do you notice how this ram got caught? This is just one of those details. You just go, this is pretty amazing. His horns get entangled in a crown of thorns. It doesn't just happen. And while he's tying Isaac up, he doesn't notice a ram with his head caught in the nettles. As he raises the knife, he doesn't notice this ram caught by its horns in a bunch of thistles. It's only as he is ready to plunge the knife in full obedience to God that he recognizes the substitute. And so Isaac goes free and the ram dies. And this provides a picture not of simply the sacrifice of a ram, but the picture that God would provide a lamb who would die for the sins of the world. The difference here is that while Abraham's hand is stayed from committing the act, God the Father's hand, no one would stop it. God's only begotten would die at his Father's command for the sins of the world in your place and in mine. And at this point, Abraham is called to do something. God may not make you move. God's grace may not cause you to change your location. God's grace will call you to a face-to-face relationship with God. And any kind of face-to-face relationship with God is going to have to recognize the exact same crazy provision that Abraham recognized here. That there is no way for us to pay the debt that we owe. That only God could do, uh, could, could pay the debt that all of us deserve because of our rebellion. And so this place... Uh, appears like it's going to be this place of tremendous tragedy, becomes a special place and deserves a special name. And since it's the place of Abraham's testing, he has the honor of naming it. And when you think of the place where you pass the test, as you think of the place where you prove your faith, man, doesn't it sound like it's a great place to name? This is the place where Abraham succeeded. This is the place where Abraham has performed. This is the place where Abraham has uh, succeeded. No, he passed the test. But rather, verse 14, Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. And so it said, it will be provided on the mountain of the Lord. God had called Abraham to do all kinds of crazy things over 25 years. To respond in faith and in obedience. And yet, at the pinnacle of his resume of faithfulness, where Abraham could pat himself on the back and say, you know what? I passed every test that God threw me away. He doesn't take any credit for it. He says, everything that I have done, as crazy as it is, moving and talking to God and recognizing this provision is done because God has provided 
everything that I have needed for every test that I have ever faced. And friends, isn't that the testimony of every believer? Has God provided everything that you have needed every step of the way? He has. And so this morning, as we alternate between the darkness of our rebellion and the glory of God's gospel shining through in different passages in the scripture, we really come to two questions here this morning. And the first is this. Abraham is a sinner just like we are. Abraham obeyed. How, how have you obeyed? Listen, you've obeyed. It doesn't matter whether you have been good obeying or bad obeying. Bad obeying, disobeying is making a choice. How have you obeyed? And it's not enough to obey him one time at the front of an altar. We have to obey him every day. I don't know what the challenges are that you'll face in 25 years. But I know that you're supposed to obey God without question. And there's one thing that God has enjoined upon all humanity. He has asked for all humans to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. To recognize that we are sinners in need of salvation and that we can't do anything to save ourselves. There's not enough money. There's not enough good works. There's not enough charities. There's not enough service opportunities for us to dig ourselves out of the hole. The only way we can get out of it is to recognize the provision that God has made in the sacrifice of His Son as a substitute for us. So when we ask about obedience, have you obeyed by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Man, if you haven't, listen, this is not a a test that you need to pass today. Some people, for them, it's like light to darkness. Boom. It's like the Apostle Paul. I'm not a believer. I am a believer. And it all changes within about an hour. For most of us, it's more like Abraham. It's a, it's a 25-year process of learning what it means to trust in God. And so today, if you don't know where your relationship is like with God, it would be an honor and a privilege for me to spend time with you and to talk about that. And we have other staff members and deacons, Sunday school teachers that would be delighted for you to have assurance about that crucial question. Because listen, it doesn't make any sense for you to obey God in any of the other details if you don't get the first step right. Obey God by trusting in Christ. So we're talking to a church crowd. Lord willing, most of you have done that. The question for you is, what have you sacrificed? What have you sacrificed? I think a lot of times our idea of sacrificing to God is kind of like goodwill after Christmas. Once you get all the new and shiny stuff, you take the stuff that you no longer need and no longer want, and you give it to somebody else. That's not a sacrifice. That's offloading your garbage. And, oh, yeah, look, I made this sacrifice. I gave this and this and this to God. No, you just don't want it anymore. Or I'll do it when it's convenient or easy for me. God doesn't ask us to give what we don't treasure or no longer need. As a matter of fact, Jesus in his call says that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So friends... The best word for us to describe who we are is we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no one on God's team who truly is a disciple who has not sacrificed something. So as we think about the incarnation of that baby who came to die to give his life for us, to set an example of not being served but to serve and to lay down his life for his friends, 
A very simple question for you this holiday season is not how much money have you put on your credit card and not how early did you get up on Black Friday. But what have you sacrificed for the good of others and for the glory of Christ? Because that's what he calls us to do. And that's what he gives us the power to do. Not that our sacrifice saves us. It's his sacrifice that saves us. But as a changed and a marked people, we're to be characterized by a humility that doesn't grasp after things. We long for God and would sacrifice for his glory alone. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for your son, our savior. And we are mindful that for many of us, trusting Christ was something that happened a long time ago. But God, the process of being a disciple is an everyday responsibility. God, you had Abraham put Isaac on the altar once. And the truth is that every morning that we wake up, we have to put our lives on the altar too. We have to die to self to be alive to you. We have to pick up a cross and bear it with joy because you are a good God. So God, we pray today that if there are those among us that don't, that aren't in a right relationship with you, that you would give us the courage to just begin a conversation. How do I know that I'm saved, that I'm in a right relationship with God, that my sins are forgiven, that I can know I have God's pleasure upon my life? God, for those of us that have trusted in you, there is indeed no sacrifice too great for us to make for a God that has loved us with such an extravagant and lavish love. So God, as we sing, may we respond in our hearts that we will serve you more faithfully, more passionately, more sacrificially. In Jesus' name.